Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest uh, edition of the podcast. A few things to tell you about in the introduction, uh, the first of which is Facebook. Uh, I've been told by a lot of people for a long time, oh you need to get on Facebook, you need to sort out a Facebook account and and, and I didn't, alright? And, and the basic reason is because Facebook was kind of this phenomenon that had passed me by, I, I can't say I really understood it. Uh, and also, I spend so much time with the website and the emails. On average, I spend about four hours a day, believe it or not, uh, dealing with emails and other bits and pieces. So it, it takes some time. And so the idea of having to have a you know a Facebook account that, again, would add to the online time wasn't something that appealed. Uh, but people pointed out to me the advantages of, of, of being on Facebook and various ways in which we could do it. So we've set up a Facebook page. So if you search Ian Abernethy on Facebook, you'll find it. And I quite like it. I think I can understand what the attraction is about Facebook. So we've got it started off. I'm going to use that in a similar way to the way I use the, the Twitter feed as well as a way to keep you up to date with all the goings on as and when it happens. So um, pop along and have a little look at that. So if you go on Facebook, search for Ian Abernethy, I-A-I-N, obviously, uh, find it. And if you could find your way clean to uh, to liking me, please like me, I need you to like me, um, that would be great. Uh, another thing is, uh, I've got a new microphone, all right? So hopefully this sounds a little bit different than previous podcasts. The old one died a death, you know, it died in action, it's gone to the Valhalla of microphones or wherever they go but so I've got this new one uh, I haven't <laughs> we're listening back to the main bit there's a few pops and clicks on it so I'm obviously sitting a bit too close to it I may be doing it on this bit too but hopefully it sounds a bit better and as I get used to using it I'll make it sound better on the next one so um, yes we've got the new mic what we've also done is this podcast is enhanced um, that may be a bit of a grandiose term but it is enhanced by which I mean it's got a picture all right, it's got a picture with it. If you're listening to this in your um, uh, on your computer or you're playing it on your you know your iPod or your MP3 player, you should see the little picture we've put on there of the uh, the pressure point diagrams. And what I've also done, if you look in the uh, comments part of the podcast, so on your MP3 player or if you right-click it if you're on your computer, you'll see in the comments what I've done is I've put links to things that hopefully you'll find uh, useful that relate to the podcast as well. So uh, there's one of the books that we mentioned, there's a book um, on Chinese martial arts training manuals, I've provided a link to that. Uh, we talk about acupuncture theory in the podcast and I've provided a link to a YouTube video which I think will help and there's other bits and pieces as well. So I intend to, to, to do that from now on in. So you've got your nice little picture to look at while you're listening to me. Um, and we've also got in the comments section, you'll find it links and things which hopefully you'll find useful. So we'll do that from uh, from now on. Uh, other bit of news. Uh, thanks to everyone who purchased the new Beyond Bunkai DVD, which is on the Nihanshi and Techie flow drills. Uh, it's got off to a really good start. So uh, again, we, making these DVDs takes a lot of time and effort, a lot of money. And it's always a great relief to me that when uh, people start buying them in in, in good numbers because it, it keeps the whole thing going it makes sure that we recoup the money that we've invested and also means we've got money to invest into future things so i'll just mention this as well i, I was one of the things on the feedback from the podcast that, that someone had suggested was to having a donate um for people who are enjoying it you know you see some podcasts have got a donate button so you click on it and you put some money through paypal or whatever and you make a little donation and you keep things running because you know these podcasts you know they do cost time you know take a lot of time and money as well you know hosting the website and everything else it costs 
but I don't really care about that, you know, so long as people are, are enjoying them. So I'm not keen on this donate idea. But if you do enjoy these podcasts, you know, you really, really like them, um, tell your friends about them. That's great. And if somewhere along the way, you know, if you, if, you, if you like them that much, then if you buy a book or you buy a DVD or you come along to a seminar, then that, that's great. You know, you, you get some extra quality information and obviously the money from that comes back into the pot and helps keep the whole thing going. So if you are enjoying these podcasts and you do want to support them, best thing you can do is tell people about them or just buy the occasional book DVD, come along to the seminars and it, it's all good, you know. Uh, okay, so final thing to mention before I conclude this introduction is, as you may have noticed, this is a long podcast. Uh, the reason for that is I we're having a discussion on pressure points, which is always a, a controversial topic, and I wanted to you know explore it as, as thoroughly as I, as I could. So it is quite long, and then uh, realising it was quite long, uh, in the questions section at the end, you know, the readers' questions, uh, uh, listeners' questions. Sorry, I thought, okay, you know, it, it's long enough as it is now, so I'll, I'll answer as many of these questions as I can. So I, I get that it's a bumper podcast, and I, I will try and get them down to a, a slightly more manageable length. But my theory, okay, so you can stick with this or not. As as I realised it was going to be a long one, I thought, well, hey, it's Christmas, isn't it? You know, Christmas is coming up, so we'll. we'll count this podcast as the Christmas special, if you like, which is why it's so long. It isn't. The reason it's so long is because I talked for as long as I do. But we'll we'll um, we'll call it the Christmas podcast. It's a bumper Christmas special, if you like. So yeah. So um, thanks uh, for tuning in once again. I will shut up now, and we'll have a discussion on uh, pressure points. In this month's podcast, we're going to cover the always controversial subject of pressure points. Before we go any further, I should make it clear that these podcasts are always 100% focused on my personal views. It would make little sense for me to try and tell you about the views of others, you know, I'll leave that up to them, or to arbitrarily give the other side of the story. I have to assume that as a listener to this podcast, they're interested in my views. You may not agree with my views, but you still have an interest in hearing what I have to say. So that's what I'll always aim to give, an honest presentation of what I think and why I think it. If I disagree with something, then I will say so. I'm not going to be dishonest or misrepresent my views in an attempt to remain balanced. I'll give you the truth of the matter as I perceive it. If you want an alternative view, which is always a good thing, you should always seek a variety of views, then you need to seek that from an alternative source. It's up to me to argue my point and those who disagree with me to argue theirs. There's no obligation on me to give a platform to views I disagree with and regard to be foolhardy or dangerous. I mention this because almost every podcast generates one or two responses that don't comprehend that the Ian Abernethy podcast, the clue is in the name people, is going to exclusively focus on Ian Abernethy's views. Those who want to promote alternative views need to start their own podcast and accept that I'm not going to give airtime on my podcast to positions to which I'm fundamentally opposed. All that said, you know, everything I do and everything everyone does should be approached with a critical mind. If people disagree with everything I say, then perhaps I'm failing to communicate my position, or maybe the listener's been very dogmatic. However, if the listener agrees with everything I say, then maybe they're not being critical enough with their own thinking. As General Patton said, if everyone's thinking alike, then someone isn't thinking. I've looked at the information from myself, and from there I formulated the views that I hold. I think we all need to do that and accept that disagreement and dissent is, is a sign of health. I state my case in the hope that others find it useful to them. I don't demand that people think the same as me and I therefore expect others to afford me the same courtesy. 
Now, the feedback on the podcast is always great, and I enjoy the discussions that often result on the forum and elsewhere. You know, I always learn a lot from such discussions. However, those who feel the need to write to me to flatly inform me that I'm wrong, and from there try to convert me back to the true path, needn't bother. So with all that out of the way, let's begin uh, with the meat of the discussion on, uh, on pressure points. Now, the first thing that often jumps into people's minds when they think of pressure points is the martial use of acupuncture points. Acupuncture, as I'm sure you know, is the insertion of needles into specific points along the meridians. And it's along these meridians that the chi, or life force of the human body, is said to flow. The meridians are associated with various organs and functions. So we have a stomach meridian, a heart meridian, a lung meridian, and so on. An acupuncturist will carefully manipulate the the chi through the use of these points along the meridians in an attempt to cure illness or improve health. The martial artist, it is said, can manipulate the chi through these same points in order to injure and incapacitate the enemy. Now, you know, there's no doubt that those who subscribe to this view can generate strong effects in some cases, but, but is it chi that's at work? Now, personally, so let's begin the controversy, personally, I do not believe that chi exists as a real force. I also don't even like using the term to express abstract concepts either. There's a great book called The Chinese Martial Arts Training Manuals by Kennedy and Gao. And if you haven't read that, then you need to. It's fantastic. It's a really, really good book. Um, and there's a great section on qi, which offers the four following definitions of qi. So, and I think this is brilliant. So one is a definition of qi can be a kind of life force. That'll be definition one. Definition two, biomechanical efficiency. Uh, definition three, anything about the martial arts that the speaker does not understand or cannot put into more concrete terms. And definition four, some combination of the previous three. Now, I think that's a great and very succinct summation of chi and all the issues surrounding it. Uh, so I'd now like to break down my thoughts on those definitions so we can discuss chi and then from there get into the, the pressure points. So the, the first thing is, you know, the first definition is chi is a kind of life force. Okay, definition one. Now, now I've I, I want to discount that one, right, on the basis that there's no concrete evidence for um, any existence of a, such a thing called chi. All we have is anecdotal evidence, all right? There, there are better, repeatable, evidence-based explanations for the differences between that which is alive and that which is dead that do not demand the leap to chi or any other supernatural force for an explanation. Chi is not needed to explain the processes of life, and hence I feel that this kind of chi comes from a worldview, as opposed to any basis in reality. Uh, now, we could use chi as a shorthand catch-all term for the process of life, but I feel this adds nothing but confusion, and hence it should be avoided. The second definition of chi was biomechanical efficiency. Now, when it comes to the martial arts, I'm a great believer in optimising our biomechanical efficiency. Uh, this can result in things on the surface seen beyond human capabilities. However, close examination reveals that high levels of skill are at play as opposed to any mystical energy. I can therefore understand chi as a term to reflect this biomechanical efficiency, but it's not a term that I would personally use because of the instant implication that this energy is not biomechanical in origin. You know, it's, it's, again, it's supernatural. Now, the third definition we had was anything about the martial arts that the speaker does not understand or cannot put into more concrete terms. Now, I think this is a great point that Kennedy and Gal raise in the book, because it, it, I'm sure we all know of superb martial artists who are not very good teachers. They have great skills, but are unable to articulate them in order to get those to develop, uh, those follow them to develop the same skills. They therefore use the term chi as a kind of element X for the something that they have, but are not able to articulate. 
Um, now, it's a key element that will take the technique from good to great. Um, and it's sometimes it's something they feel but can't quite explain. And therefore, this is labelled as chi. However, the key here is that someone who is able to articulate it, or a student with more experience, so they're ready to the point where they, can, they understand it, will be able to clearly define what element X is. And hence, there's no need to resort to using the term chi as a kind of, well, I'm not sure or you're not experienced enough to understand this yet. You know, so. Then the fourth definition we had was some combination of the previous three. Now, seeing as definition four is a mix of the preceding three, if uh, one, two and three are baseless, and I believe they are, then four is baseless too. There's no evidence for a mystical life force. Biomechanical efficiency is biomechanical efficiency, and it's not magical or supernatural. A good teacher will be able to communicate all elements of a technique and doesn't need to resort to chi as a fig leaf for misunderstanding or not being able to articulate something. So I would therefore say chi is a redundant term that can safely be dropped from modern martial arts. The only reason I can see for keeping the term chi in common use in the martial arts is an appeal to the mystical in an attempt to perpetuate the myth that martial artists have superpowers and perhaps even to market the arts based on that definition or that myth. Um, yeah, so that could be definition five, I guess. Um, if we believe chi to be a real independent force, you know, that's independent of biomechanical efficiency, and it's vital to the processes of life, then we need evidence for that. And the burden of proof rests on those who make the claim. Now, seeing as no such evidence has ever been forthcoming, all, all we have is anecdotal evidence, and we also have that for UFO abductions and the Loch Ness Monster, so I put about much store in chi as I do in those things. There is no good reason to believe in chi as a life force until such solid evidence is forthcoming. Now, you know, so, but people have looked at this, you know. There have been experiments where acupuncture treatments have been compared to the random placement of needles, where the recipient believed they were getting genuine acupuncture. And it was shown that both treatments yielded the exact same results. Um, they even did one where they used uh, toothpicks instead of needles, so the pain was greater, and that actually yielded, so random placement of the, the, these, these toothpicks, greater pain, but actually yielded a greater result. So this, these are demonstrations of, you know, placebo and the power of the mind to affect health, perhaps. Um, but it showed that the accurate placement of needles on meridians makes no difference, which is not what you'd expect if these meridians were real. Now, there's no doubt that enough studies have shown that acupuncture can provide pain relief. Although sceptics would say this is due to the endorphins released by the brain through the insertion of needles as opposed to any kind of chi manipulation. Uh, Wallace Sampson, who's the editor of uh, the Scientific Review of Alternative Medicine, I mean, he commented that a pinch on the butt is also likely to generate the same response, and indeed it did when they did acupuncture tests on animals. Um, some proponents of acupuncture even accept that chi is not the mechanism at work. Uh, Felix Mann, who's the first president of the British Medical Acupuncture Society, is on record as saying... Traditional acupuncture points are no more real than the black spots a drunk sees in front of his eyes. Now, this obviously has serious ramifications for those who would entrust their lives to a chi-based view of these points. Now, despite the doubts about chi and the reality of acupuncture points, acupuncture has been shown to provide pain relief for some people. However, there is zero in the way of scientific studies that show that acupuncture has any effect at all on things like breathing issues, you know, asthma, um, circulation issues, digestive issues. The claim that the meridian is therefore linked to alternative uh, internal organs has, has nothing to support it. Now, this obviously has big ramifications for how acupuncture points apply to the martial arts. Any claim that striking a certain point can interfere with the heart, etc., 
through the manipulation of qi has no basis in fact. There's never been a study to show that's the case. Now, to be clear, Western medicine can explain why trauma to certain areas can interfere with the function of the internal organs, but qi just doesn't come into it. The scientific evidence would also debunk the theory, which originates from the theories of acupuncture, that striking pressure points in a certain order is more effective than striking them in any other order. So just to explain the basics of why people think that, but certain meridians are associated with certain elements, and by elements we mean fire, wood, water, metal and earth. So for example, the stomach meridian is said to be earth in nature, uh, the heart meridian is said to be fire in nature and so on. So from these elemental associations, we get a creative cycle, so that these are the way in which the elements interact, for example, wood creates fire. We also have a destructive cycle, for example, water destroys fire. Now some martial artists subscribe to a belief that hitting acupuncture points in accordance with these cycles can have a catastrophic effect on their body. But as we've just said, there's zero in the way of evidence for this. Now striking certain areas can have a mechanical effect, of course, um, and, and that can uh, greatly influence the, the effect of the blow. And, and it's to these mechanical effects that the proponents of chi cycles most frequently point. So for example, like if an enemy's grabbing hold of my lapel and I strike them on the forearm with my free arm, their head will twist, presenting a cleaner shot of the target, hence making the jaw um, the strike to the jaw more effective. But that's got nothing to do with chi. The head turns because the forearm is connected to the upper arm, which is in turn connected to the shoulder. So hitting the forearm therefore directs a corresponding shoulder forwards and down. And because the neck and head rest on top of the shoulders, the head turns. And that turns the head a little bit, lines you up for a great shot to the draw, the enemy's brain shakes and he passes out. It's got nothing to do with chi. That the reason striking in the order works better is because you get a cleaner shot to the enemy's jaw at the end of it. It's all mechanical and can be explained by standard uh, understanding of the body. You don't need to invoke chi in any of this. It confuses the issue. It adds an unneeded layer of mystical complexity to what should be the simple job of protecting ourselves. Uh, we've got no need to consider the direction of chi flow, what element a given meridian is associated with, what time of day it is, because certain meridians are said to be more active at certain times of day, and so on. We can make things much simpler, and hence much more accessible and effective by avoiding all of this. Now, so there's no misunderstanding, like, let me state for the record that striking weak points, pressure points, Q-show points, DIMAC points, whatever you want to call them, can work very effectively. Right? I'm not disputing the effectiveness of hitting these places. What I'm saying is it's got nothing whatsoever to do with a magical force called Qi. There are better, more consistent scientific explanations and I prefer to work with those. Now, this is not a podcast on Qi, so I'll stop now and avoid going on to such obvious nonsense as no-touch knockouts. He's yeah, you're using your cheat and knock someone over from a distance. Um, you'll think Jedi mind trick. Or even the extremely dubious light tap knockouts, all right? The bottom line is this. You know, I'm a martial artist. I'm not a magician. I therefore study the weaknesses of the human body and learn how to exploit them. I therefore don't see the need to study chi in any of this. You know, also let me make it clear. This is not an out-of-hand rejection of chi. I did spend some time studying weak points from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective. Um, the conclusion that I reached was that this got in the way of the simplicity that I'm always seeking, and the application of the rules of acupuncture, etc., made not one iota of difference to the actual, actual result. I could simply whack the weak points that have a scientific basis and get as good, if not better, results. I therefore ceased to look at chi um, and, and points from the chi perspective.
Now, you know, I know others have found the principles of qi and the associated laws to be very useful, but that's not my experience, and that's why I hold the views that I do. If you disagree with me, and what you do is working for you, then more power to you. As I say, I know some really good guys who subscribe to a belief in qi, and my conflicting belief no way takes away from their ability or their sincerity. Uh, it's just my own path has not led me to reach the same conclusions as them, so no qi for Ian. Um... Now, there are some people, I guess we've got to mention, that are totally deluded about their qi-based prowess. Um, they believe that their mastery of qi, and hence the qi of others, makes them infinitely superior to those poor deluded souls who actually train hard, you know. A quick scan of YouTube shows what can happen when they put their qi up against a physical combative test. So while they're deluded, they nevertheless honestly believe in what they do. They, they wouldn't subscribe to such a test otherwise, you know. Say, look at YouTube, loads of people who, you know, claim to knock people out with chi and then they get knocked over, you know, that they, they, they try and do it on people who don't believe in it, it doesn't work, that they, they, they're going to deflect people who are running at them to tackle them using chi and they just get tackled over. So, you know, but just to do the test, they honestly believe that it's going to work. They must do. Now, otherwise, they wouldn't, you know, agree to the test, but it fails. So, you know, whether they still believe in the chi after the test, you know, remains to be seen, I guess. Now, of course, there are some out-and-out -out charlatans who use chi as a way to make themselves seem more mystical and as a way to make some dishonest money. However, they're a million miles apart from the effective martial artists who have sincere and honest belief in chi. Now, while I don't agree with these people about the existence of chi, I nevertheless respect their ability and sincerity. So I don't subscribe to a belief in chi, nor do I use acupuncture-based terminology for striking areas. For example, I don't use the term stomach nine when referring to the point on the neck that can result in unconsciousness. The reason being that such a point has nothing to do with the stomach, and Western medicine gives a solid and scientific reason for why unconsciousness results, whereas acupuncture theory does not. I will always choose function over tradition, and hence I prefer to move away from traditional labelling, you know, using acupuncture points, and stick with a scientific as opposed to misleading terminology. Now, I guess you could say the advantage of using acupuncture terminology is that students can look at any acupuncture chart and find the exact location of the point in question. The big disadvantage, in my view, is that using acupuncture charts brings chi and all chi-based theories into the mix. And this adds, you know, an unproven uh, mystical force and unnecessarily uh, complexity into what should be the simple job of taking a guy out. I prefer a scientific whack-here approach as it's simpler and gets better results. The lack of chi and acupuncture terminology in my approach has led to some to wrongly conclude that pressure points, or whatever you want to call them, don't play a part in my interpretation of kata. That's wrong, because weak points do play a part in my interpretation of kata. Now, for practical reasons, it's not the primary element as it is with some, but it is there, but in a scientific and simple way. So whether you're pro-chi, anti-chi, or undecided about chi, that there should be a general agreement that knowing where to hit is an important part of any martial artist's knowledge. Uh, I do study and I do teach striking points as I feel they're very important but they're not as important as being able to hit hard. So doing demos on a guy who stands there is one thing. Um, hitting accurately when things kick off is entirely something else. Um, expecting to hit with pinpoint accuracy at a set angle and direction in a live fight is unrealistic and naive. People move a lot in a fight and the frantic exchange of fire leads to an extremely chaotic situation. It's simply not realistic or practical to say that power is unimportant if you know where to hit.
Now, Shua will always intend to direct blows to weak areas, but the realism and the chaos mean that once we're past the preemption stage and are in a fight, that blows are extremely unlikely to land exactly as we intend, and hence they'd better be capable of doing damage anyway. The ability to hit with power ensures an effect even if we don't hit exactly where we want it. Uh, now, some martial artists mistake powerful strikes as being the result of raw, untamed strength. You know, i.e., you know, a, a powerful blow is a crude way to subdue an enemy, whereas a true martial artist will rely on skill and accuracy. The big mistake with this is the false assumption that powerful blows are not the result of skill. Where this comes from is that unskilled martial artists do can't hit hard because their technique is poor. Instead of working on their technique, they incorrectly conclude that only big people can hit hard and hence their weak technique is beyond their control. The answer, as they see it, is to accept that they will never be able to hit hard and hence the only chance they have is to hit vulnerable areas that require less power. Now that's just, it's wrong. Um, the key and overriding component of power is good technique. Now sure, having extra body weight to put into that technique helps, but a big guy with poor technique will not hit hard. I know lots of martial artists with slight builds who can generate massive power. And one of the smallest martial artists I train with is also one of the biggest hitters that I know. Uh, indeed, I've had students who in self-defense situations have dropped much larger enemies due to good technique. It's therefore not right to say that a small person's only chance is pressure points, when good technique would probably help them all the more. And this is the thing, see, all the guys that I know who make really effective use of pressure points are also good martial artists. You know, I, I, you know, people who are jumping to mind, I'm thinking of, you know, your Vince Morrises and your, your Rick Clarks and your Russell Stutleys. These guys are good martial artists, you know, they, they, they can hit well, they can move well and everything else. You know, they're not solely relying on points. Um, but you still hear that, you know, you still hear that from some quarters of the pressure point community. Oh, yeah, you know, you don't need to be able to hit hard if you know where to hit. It's just not right. Knowing where to hit is important. But I would say that knowing how to hit is much more important. Now, if you lack the how, the chaos of life situations will in all likelihood render your knowledge of where impotent. So while I believe the study of weak areas is vital, believing that knowledge of pressure points removes the need to be able to hit hard is failing to acknowledge the reality of conflict in my view. You need both to be effective. However, I would always say the how to hit is of greater importance than the where to hit. Now, as I just said, all the people I know who use pressure points effectively have good quality striking skills, they're good martial artists, and they also tend to dislike those who say that pressure points absolve you of the need to hit hard, as that misrepresents what they teach in the field of pressure point study generally. People then think that pressure points are ineffective, whereas in reality, what they've seen is ineffective people using pressure points ineffectively, you know. Now, while it's not the topic of this podcast, the kata, the karate kata, do include methods for increasing accuracy, including the controlling of limbs, so clearing the path of the strike, getting the enemy's limbs out of the way, and datum setting, which is ensuring you have a, a tactile awareness of where the enemy is in the mess of the conflict. However, even with these methods, pinpoint accuracy is still very difficult, and that's why power is so important. Another thing we can do to make things simpler with regards to accuracy is to think in terms of zones as opposed to points. Now, a zone is an area that contains a number of points. And when we hit the zone hard enough, any number of those points is likely to be affected. Right? 
So, for example, whereas some would ask, you know, that we hit stomach 5, triple warmer 17, stomach 7, conception vessel 24, and so on, in light of the fact that exact location, angle and direction are almost impossible to achieve in a live situation, I would suggest that we group these together in a zone and accept that a good shot to the jaw zone, which is where all those points are located, from any angle will take the guy out. Now, the advantage of the zone method is the avoidance of chi and all associated mysticism. The clear-cut, demonstrable fact that hitting the jaw shakes the brain and can KO people. The practitioner is not looking to hit a small point, but instead has a larger zone to aim for, which will hopefully present hesitation and promote positive action. And, you know, the whole thing is just infinitely simpler in terms of both theory and application. So, in addition to the jaw zone, the other main zones that I make use of are the four diagonals around the neck. Now, those who have been on my seminars will have seen me demonstrate a basic drill for these five key zones, so the jaw plus the four angles of the neck, utilising the motions and concepts recorded in the early part of Pinan Shodan or Hian Nidan Kata. Now, it'll be difficult to describe that drill here, but a very simple drill that rotates around the four zones of the neck would be as follows. So, if you imagine a partner standing in front of you, and you take your left shuto, or your left forearm, and take it diagonally into the right, as in your right, uh, front side of the partner's uh, your partner's neck, and we'll call that zone one. You then take your right ridge hand or right forearm, and take it diagonally onto the right rear side of your partner's neck. So that will be zone two. You then take your left uh, ridge hand or forearm and take it diagonally into the left rear side of the partner's neck. Zone three. Finally, you take your right shuto. Uh, or forearm and take it diagonally into the left front side of your partner's neck so that will be zone four and then you can repeat reverse or mix up the cycle in order to get familiar with the zones so another way to envision it if you imagine like a box a square and you would stand in front of your partner and you would put the square over the neck so they're wearing it like a necklace then twist it so it's like diamond shapes so the points are kind of you know along the um, north south east west lines where the sides of the square are now at, all those 45 degree angles, that would be the line in which you would fall, take your, your strike in. So that's another way in which you can view those, those four zones. Now these zones are, are used a lot by kata, so it is important to be familiar with them. Now the zones work because they have points within them. So for knowledge, it can be useful to know these points. And by that I mean the nerves and the structures that lead to the results we experience when we hit those areas. Um... For function, however, I think we're far better off thinking of the zone. Now, for those who do insist on acupuncture terminology, and as I've suggested, I think we'd be better dropping the confusion and mysticism that that terminology brings and not use it. But however, zone 1 and 4 would be associated with stomach 9 and 10 and large intestine 18. Zones 2 and 3 could be associated with small intestine 16, gallbladder 20, bladder 10. Now, However, I'll say again that the effects of these points have nothing whatsoever to do with chi or acupuncture theory. They have nothing whatsoever to do with the organs they are supposedly associated with. They just happen to overlie physical structures that, when impacted, have sound scientific reasons for knocking a guy out. So to give some examples, right? The front zones, you know, the 45-degree angles to the front of the neck, zones 1 and 4... Uh, they primarily work because the, 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 the baroreceptors associated with the, uh, the carotid artery. The soul's function of these baroreceptors is to monitor the blood pressure uh, that flows to the brain, monitor the pressure of the blood that's flowing to the brain. So a strike to this area fools the body into believing that the blood pressure is too high. In response to this stimulus, the heart will slow down, 
the veins will dilate, the artery all our smooth muscle will relax, and the heart will pump less blood per contraction. This will draw blood away from the brain, which will cause the recipient to pass out. Now the vagus nerve runs alongside the carotid sinus at this point, and that also has an effect on the body generally. Applying pressure to this area, as in a stranglehold, will also result in a loss of consciousness. Um, striking this area is very potent and can have severe results. I mean, this area is obviously very close to throat, which may also be affected by the blow. We're not deliberately trying to hit the throat, though, with these, uh, these four zones. Uh, the rear zones, so the diagonal angles, zones 2 and 3, are where the muscles of the neck attach to the base of the skull, and below this is the occipital bone which covers the cerebellum. And now, this is the part of the brain that controls muscular movement, balance, and muscle tone. Now, it's said that it's alcohol sedation of the cerebellum that results in people staggering around when they're drunk, you know? So, a blow to this area can therefore result in a loss of motor function, disorientation, and unconsciousness. Where the base of the skull meets the center of the neck is where the spinal column has the least amount of support from any surrounding tissue. And hence, you know, it's at its weakest. So, a blow to these zones towards the base can have, you know, severe. Um, results um, and can even cause paralysis or death. Now this brings us to a very important point. There are no, no safe striking points. You could kick someone in the shin and they could fall and die from the head hitting the floor. We therefore need to be very careful of any claims of safe ways of disabling a determined attacker. We should always do everything we can to avoid conflict, but when it can't be avoided, then we you know, have to do what we need to do to disable the attacker, and that's going to mean doing damage to them. One of the common myths surrounding pressure points is they can provide a safe or a humane way of stopping an assailant. That's simply not true. If a person is intent on doing you harm, then you have to be prepared to harm them. Trying to humanely stop them is likely to result in you not stopping them. I would therefore strongly object to those who would suggest that the best response to violent rapists and murderers is to humanely de-chi them. The giver of such advice is inadvertently assisting the criminal element, and the recipient of that advice is, is certain to find that when they try not to hurt their attacker, then they'll be very successful in not hurting them. When our well-being is threatened and escape is not an option, then we need to hit areas that will cause damage, you know, and we need to hit them hard. When our health and well-being are legitimately threatened, and you know, I'd hope you'd have the good sense of maturity not to be fighting unless that was definitely the case, then I would suggest that the jaw and neck are the primary targets. Those are the targets that are most likely to end the fight, and those are the ones that should be given priority. Now, of course, there are many other striking zones or points besides these, you know, all of which you know, should be eventually part of your study, but I would suggest that these five zones are the primary areas. There are many other areas and points to discuss, such as you know the eyes, throat, groin, solar plexus, suprasternal notch, uh, the xiphoid process, the sciatic nerve, etc., etc., etc. Now, obviously, it's not possible to study all of these points as part of this podcast, but those areas and points should be part of your study. So, my Bunkai Jitsu book covers the main ones as, as I see it, as does uh, Gichi Funakoshi's Karate Do Kyohan. Um, so, there'd be two places to start, you know, if you want to expand your knowledge on these things. So I'd now like to conclude this discussion by quickly recapping on some key points, right? 1. Qi is unproven and no link has ever been established between acupuncture points and the organs and biological functions they supposedly affect. Western medicine makes a much better job of explaining why martial pressure points get the results they do. 
And hence, I personally don't make reference to chi or use acupuncture terminology when discussing weak areas. 2. When a fight is in full flow, the accurate placement of blows becomes very difficult. Now, if you disagree with that, try some energetic all-in sparring, right? A knowledge of where to hit, therefore, does not mean you can ignore how to hit. We need both. But in the overall hierarchy of martial methods, being able to hit with power through solid technique is more important than knowing where to hit. 3. Because carefully defined points, angles and directions are rendered functionally meaningless in the chaos of combat, I believe we are better grouping points into zones in order to make things simpler in theory and in practice. 4. We should only ever fight if we truly have no other option available to us. In such a serious situation we need to incapacitate the enemy quickly in order to ensure our safety. I would therefore suggest that the jaw and the neck are the primary zones in study and application. However, all other zones should also be studied. 5. There is no such thing as a safe striking area. Every time you hit someone, in training or in practice, there exists the risk of injury, paralysis or death. It is therefore vital that you practice safely, with care and control, under the close supervision of a suitably qualified and experienced person. And that you never strike someone in reality unless you are legally and morally justified in doing so. And, if you have such justification, you should be focused on your health and well-being and not the health and well-being of the person trying to harm you. So I said at the start of this podcast, pressure points are always a controversial topic and there are many different ways to approach a subject. So, whether you agree with what I've said in this podcast or not, I hope that the discussion on my own personal approach to pressure points has proved useful. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, now we're looking at uh, listeners' questions. I I asked for any questions for the podcast uh, via Twitter and via the website. And usual thing. So within a couple of hours, I had loads. Um, So thanks. Uh, It's just great that I I really appreciate everybody posing the questions. As you know, what I've been doing is I've been picking two and then discussing them uh, fairly in depth. because this podcast is a bit longer than normal, I had considered just dropping it for this month, but I, I don't want to do that because I quite like this and people seem to like the section too. And, uh, you know, we've overran anyway, so hell, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. What, what I have done, some of the questions that were submitted were, you know, really good, but would require in-depth answers. So what I've done is I picked all the ones that I feel I can answer uh, relatively quickly and seeing as it's you know it's a festive season and stuff rather than just picking a couple I'll try and answer as many as I can um, if the question that you submitted is not included it's simply because it requires a you know bigger answer and uh, hopefully we'll cover those ones in future podcasts okay so the first one we've got is from Kyle Buttress and this came uh, via Twitter and he said uh, your thoughts on how a lot of Kata and Bunkai theory relies on the opponent conforming to the moves uh, that, that's a great one and, and it's something I absolutely despise I can't stand it when people do that uh, and by this what I mean is you know the, the, the enemy if you like has to re- complete a certain action or has to respond in a certain way in order for the movement to be valid we see this a lot in the Bunkai demonstrations for karate competition you know the finals of team kata so you know the guy comes in with a noizuki which he blocks and the guy counters with a gaku and if he did anything else other than that the, the application simply wouldn't work 
So this is the way I get around that, all right? One is, I, I don't believe in this, okay? The, the idea that the bunkai needs the enemy to perform a specific action, and if they perform anything other than that, it doesn't apply, is obviously massively flawed. So whenever we see bunkai like that, it's pragmatically and historically, it's wrong. We can reject it. It might look good, which it often does in kata tournaments, but it's, it's wrong. Um, so my rule for this is, uh, and I say this a lot at the seminars, uh, bunkai is not something you do with a partner. Bunkai is something you do to your enemy. So um, I like that phrase, so I'll do it again. Good bunkai is not something you do with a partner. It's something you do to your enemy. In other words, it doesn't require their consent or compliance. It's something that gets done to them. Um, and if we're not seeing that, then I would suggest that the, uh, the bunkai is incorrect and the kata needs to, to be re-examined. Um, the next one we've got is for, again, by Twitter, is uh, Chris CSKC, and he says, uh, which pressure point do you favour and why? Well, obviously, that's an ideal one for what we've been discussing So, um, in the podcast generally. So I don't really think of points, you know? Um, as we've said, I tend to think of zones, and if I had to pick one, well, in podcast you heard of my favourite five, but one I'd go jaw, all right? You know, the, the, the jaw would be my favourite area for that, just because a good, strong, solid shot and guys drop, you know, it, it, it works well, it works consistently, so I, w- I would go for jaw. There are some other ones that are interesting, though. Um, for gameplay, for example, uh, um, uh, the, between the, the muscles of the, 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 the chest and the muscles of the back, just underneath the armpit into the ribcage, love digging. Digging my knuckle in there and rubbing up and down when we're doing uh, grappling because it hurts like hell in gameplay. I don't believe it would work when a guy was adrenalized, so I love doing that. Um, gouging round by the back of the ear, pushing onto the facial nerve on the back of the jaw. I like that too. Uh, again, that's a, it's a gameplay thing. It's me and my, my training partners having fun. But for, uh, well, I'm having fun. <laughs> um, but the, the, uh, in terms of getting a point to work or a zone to work, jaw. Jaw would be the key one for me. I've got a good one um, from Gary Mann via email, and he said, uh, uh, with what would you credit the seemingly large gap between kata and self-defense that seems to exist in a very high percentage of modern karate dojos? Uh, and, and this is where the bunkai comes in for me. Uh, for those that have seen my syllabus or trained with me or visited uh, my dojo, you'll know we don't have um, a self-defense section on the syllabus. We, we don't need it because the bunkai does that. Right, so we learn the kata, we learn the bunkais, and that's the self-defense skills covered. We do additional stuff for our fighting skills and everything else along their lines, but the self-defense side of it, the physical self-defense side of it at least, is covered by the uh, the kata bunkai. And there is that disconnect, which which I've started to call um, 3K karate. And what I mean by that is where you see kata, uh, kumite, and kion. Uh, so for the non-Japanese practitioners, you know, uh, basic forms and, and, and sparring, uh, where all three of them are totally unrelated. They're not linked. Um, and we want to get away from that. What I like is when there is that link together. So when they're doing the kata, you know, that is improving the self-defense. The sparring that we do, um, a percentage of it at least, is, is self-defense based as well. So it all ties together and all becomes a central hub. So when that is that disconnect, you've got to ask, well, why are you doing it? You know, why are you doing kata if it doesn't serve any purpose? And obviously in some cases, people have gone, oh, well, we're dropping kata. We're getting uh, getting rid of it. Uh, the solution, thing for me has been I would never get rid of kata because as I've examined the, the, the bunkai of it, I think it's so functional, it's so well structured, it, it, the, the, the whole package that it presents is ideal for us. So there is, without a doubt, as Gary quite rightly points out, there is that gap where people do kata for kata's sake, kion for kion's sake, kumite for kumite's sake. And 
that's not what we want to be. It should all be related and all be linked together. And more and more people, I think now, as are looking at Bunkai from a pragmatic perspective and practical perspective, that's, to me anyway, you're seeing less and less of it that the disconnect been there. And more and more people in, embracing this return, if you like, to a traditional, uh, a traditional view. Um, yeah, so I hope that kind of gives you some thoughts there, Gary. But basically, I, I agree with you completely. And it's, it's, that gap is something we need to get rid of. Uh, next one we have is uh, Rakesh Patel, and this came by email. Rakesh uh, is a good um, a friend of mine. Uh, if you haven't already, he's, he's got a website, uh, Katacombat, uh, that he does. Uh, RakeshPatel.com is the website. Um, and he's got a free ebook on Gion on there, and he's, he's a great guy, does some great stuff. So if you do a web search, Rakesh Patel, find his website, check it out, sign up to his mailing list because his, um, yeah, his material is really, really good. Um, and he was talking about that his his Kata Combat group they they do some training uh, outdoors. All right, they have a couple of um, sessions where they go and train out in a uh, away from the dojo. And he says, um, "Do I do this? And do I feel it's important to change the training environment from the comfort of the dojo?" Now I do know of some groups. This is where it's, the environment can change a lot. Um, the physical environment. I, I know of groups. Uh, I know of a group that they have a dojo. They have a purpose-built dojo where they've actually built um, a gravel kind of pit <laughs> outside, which they do their groundwork in. So they'll do the groundwork in the dojo, and it's all very well and good. And then they'll go out and do it on the rocks. And very quickly, people realise, God, putting your knees down on the ground is not such a great idea. And so that they have to adjust it and adapt it for that kind of street environment, if you like. Um, I believe the same place even has a, they've got a, like a bar area now where um, they have the kind of flashing lights and the music and the smoke machines so people spar in there as well. So um, do I do it? Not as often as I should, if I'm honest. You know, we, we tend not to go outside and, and work it. Um, but I do think there's value in doing that. I also think you can kind of recreate it within the dojo a little bit by using things. You can create clutter using uh, putting uh, pads and uh, bags on the floor is great. Um, so it, there's these objects around them that can get in the way of doing things. They can also use those objects as well, of course. So we'll put pads and um, focus bits all over the floor when they're doing various drills. And that's, you know, obstructions, but they could pick them up and use them as weapons and shields and whatever else. So I think there does need to be that acknowledgement that we haven't always got that perfect, well-lit in, in environment and that we need to train a, a, accordingly to take that uh, that in. Yeah, do I personally take my own students a lot of time out into the car park and drill things? No, we don't. But we acknowledge that the environment is different and we do kind of include that within the the dojo training. Um, it, we live in Cumbria, you know, it, it's freezing cold and wet up here. Who wants to go outside and roll around on the ground in that, you know? Um, and the next one I've got, uh, a final one, um, is from Mark Lynn. And this one came via the uh, the website. And he said, uh, when do I start to teach a cutter application, as in Bunkai, cutter-based sparring, etc., in my program? And to what age of student, what rank, uh, etc.? And it makes a point that uh, the majority of students, um, I think in all martial arts now, are children. So at what rank and age would it be, be suitable? Um, now, for me, uh, I no longer teach children. I have some... Uh, younger students who've been with me for a long time, but only a small number, so three or four. Uh, I, because of the nature of what I teach, I don't really think it's suitable for uh, for kids. I think kids should do martial arts. I just think they should learn it off somebody else because it's not what 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 I do. But if if I was you know teaching kids, I would suggest that I would have them doing bunkai uh, and katabase sparring from day one. But it would be suitable to their age range. So obviously, I'm not going to be teaching kids, you know. Uh, joint locks because the bones aren't fully formed yet you know it can cause problems i'm not going to teach them 
chokes and strangles. I'm not going to teach them, you know, um, gouging and stuff like that. But I will teach them, you know, breaking away from grips. I will teach them basic grappling skills. I will teach them throwing skills, gripping skills, um, all of that kind of stuff. Because as I've always said, that the two things with kids, they're going to do one of two things in the martial journey. They're going to get older or they're going to quit. Right? If they quit, well, they've gone. All right, so they're not your problem anymore. If they've got older, then at some point you've got to make the shift from the uh, children's karate they've done, if you like, into the more adult-based karate. So it, it's no good having a separate, entirely different kid set of things, and then when they hit kind of adults, they're suddenly changing disciplines. It it needs to be appropriate for their age range, uh, but, but blend into it. And I think actually, just as a brief aside, I think that was Itosu's original intention. If you read Itosu's 10 precepts, he says that if we start teaching uh, karate to children in the schools, we will produce men capable of defeating 10 opponents. So I don't think he ever intended to be, it to be like a, just a child's exercise program. I think there was the idea that they would learn in a way that was suitable for their age, but that it would progress to an adult system that would have you know, a, a functional use. Um, that's, that's certainly, if you read the whole of the 10 precepts, that's certainly what I take from it anyway. Um, so yeah, so I, w- I would include the Katabay sparring, I would include the Bunkai, but it would have to be appropriate for them. That's the age thing. In terms of rank, uh, again, I teach that straight from the beginning. As, as soon as the students are, are in there, my, our beginners um, learn you know, the basic grappling skills and whatever else you know that would form part of our Katabay sparring. The instant they learn a Kata, they'll be learning the Bunkai right alongside it. Um, so I don't do this thing of then teaching the kata and then teaching the bunkai afterwards. Um, I also don't do the thing of teaching all the bunkai first and then the kata afterwards. You know, what I found to be most effective is to teach the two side by side because then they clearly understand the link. Um, in fact, I had one of my, um, it's it's funny how your students get um, institutionalized, if you like, to your own way of doing it. But I had one of my um, orange belts who'd been on YouTube and was shocked, you know, when he'd gone on there, the kind of things that passed for Bunkai and that uh, not everybody did it. He was, he was amazed that what we did wasn't the uh, the norm. Um, and that's, you know, one of the orange belts. So I think it's good to immerse them in it from, from day one. Uh, danger of overrunning here seriously on the podcast but I'll just mention this one as well in response to Mark's question but I think one of the dangers we sometimes have is the idea that the student should learn a load of ineffective nonsense until they've proved the worth and then you'll teach them something effective I've never agreed with that you know as soon as a student walks through the dojo doors I want to be teaching them skills that they can use so, t- and bear in mind, they're not that skilled, so they have to be simple skills. We teach them about the threat awareness, the threat avoidance, uh, preemption, all that kind of stuff right from day one. Because then if the student only trains you with you for three months, they have some low-level skills that still might work for them. What I don't want to do is teach them, say, a load of nonsense for the first you know, while and then say, oh, and by the way, now that you've been training for 10 years, I'll now teach you something that's actually functional. Because when people come to you to learn martial arts, a lot of people come to learn self-defense. And it would be dishonest of me to say, well, I'm not going to teach you it until a certain time's passed. I'll teach it from day one. So in answer to the question, you know, when do I start to teach cutter application, uh, cutter-based sparring, bunkai, um, straight away. So white belt. And what age of student? For me, it's like the, the teens, t- teenagers. Um, we take them at, at 14, the youngest will take them. But but, uh, but again, it's appropriate to their age. Right? And if I had children, proper children, who are younger than that, um, again, I would still be teaching them bunkai and stuff. But again, it would be appropriate to their age with a view to it developing into the more um, serious adult-based stuff uh, when they're older. So 
I hope that's okay. I hope that was all done in one take as well. It's not bad there. I had to edit out a cough. That, that was it. I had to stop and edit out a cough. But other than that, that was fine. So I hope those ramblings are okay. Thanks to everyone who submitted the questions. I'll do the same thing again next uh, month. I'll uh, put a note out on, on Twitter and Facebook and whatever else. And then if you've got any questions, get them to me. And hopefully it'll be a slightly shorter podcast uh, next month. So uh, we'll pick a few questions out and maybe do them in a little bit more depth. But I hope that was useful. And thanks once again to everybody for submitting your questions. that almost concludes this bumper Christmas special podcast. <laughs> uh, just a few little things to say before we go. Uh, one thing, a reminder to check out the Facebook page. If you could do that for me, that would be great. Uh, let me know what you think about it. Is it useful for you? Is it giving you what you need? Uh, and above all else, like me, like me. Go on there, like me, and tell everyone else to like me. Let's get them numbers up. Eh? If you could do that, I would really appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't had enough of me on this podcast, uh, I would suggest that you also, and I'm, I'm sure you will have done, but in, on the off chance that you haven't, uh, if you check out the jeffthompson.com podcast, uh, the episode called Rehab and Threats, it mentions on there there's a special guest, and that special guest is me. So on that podcast, um, I, I talk about what I find inspirational, my thoughts on self-defense, uh, talk about music for a little bit, uh, about suffering for your art, and, uh, and about my mum as well. We talk about my mum. So obviously Jeff Thompson's, uh, uh, it's the Jeff Thompson talk podcast so Jeff Thompson's obviously on it and it's co-presented by Richard Barnes who's a, a good friend of mine and Richard's also the guy who at the start of this podcast the, the voice that introduces me that's Richard so if you want to check out the Jeff Thompson top co- uh, dot com podcast you should be listening to that regularly anyway you know but but um, that episode rehab and threats is the episode that I'm on so and uh, although final thing yet just remember that in the comments section of this podcast we've put some links to a YouTube video you'll find useful hopefully and, and the book that we talked about the Chinese martial arts training manuals great book you know really good um, so hopefully those extra little comments in there are useful to you and let me know what you think you know on those those, those links you know is this kind of thing useful to you is it giving you what you need and I can be contacted by, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever else. But the easiest way, always ian at ianabernethy.com. If you just uh, drop me an email, that would be great. So, yeah, I think that about concludes it. Um, thank you so much for your support in 2010. Uh, I say it a lot, but I say it because I mean it. Uh, I, I love putting these podcasts together. It really always warms my heart to think that so many people listen to them, both from the site and via iTunes and, and wherever else. So thank you so much for listening in. Thanks for the support. It's massively appreciated. You know, I, I, I like it lots. I really do appreciate all the support you give me. So have a great Christmas, because I probably won't speak to you until the new year. And I'll see you uh, next year in 2011 space age numbers now it's scary isn't it uh, see you next uh, next next year and uh, yes thanks once again okay have a good one all the best to you and yours bye now